Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and I'm with Audrey Waters, and we're at Science Leadership Academy in Philadelphia. And we are, it is the 29th of January, and this is our weekly podcast, Audrey. We're face-to-face, -face too, which is We are. <laughs> delightful. I know. <laughs> and we've heard about fruitopians. We have heard about fruitopians, Thanks, which I don't think either of us, after last week, we, we, aren't, we aren't qualified to be fruitopians. Uh, and uh, aside from Educon, the uh, news this week felt to me a little bit like a tennis match between Google and Apple and Google and Apple. We keep vacillating in our subjects. I know. <laughs> Let's see who we'll take on this Is week. there anybody else of importance? <laughs> Let's see. Um, Pearson. Yes, how about that? <laughs> okay, so tell us why HTML5 is so important. Um, the, the, the company that I wrote about this week was called Desmos, and I, I like this company a lot. Um, they're, a, they're a new startup, and they have, um, they've been building products, which I think is, I think this is this really important notion, right, is that we cannot just have educational content that works on one device. We have to make sure that um, programs are accessible no matter whether you're using a Mac or a PC, an iPhone or an Android. And uh, in, terms of the, you know, in terms of the future of the browser and the web, HTML5 is, is sort of the, the latest standard of HTML. And it's contains a lot of new things that just make you make it possible to do interesting, really interesting audio, visual um, uh, things. And you can, it can work offline even, which is, again, in terms of, of the browser, um, pretty important if you don't have connectivity um, to still be able to manipulate things. So, so Desmos makes a free graphing calculator, um, which I love because, you know, making Making families buy a $70 <laughs> graphing calculator for one high school class it seems, um, it seems like a, a great deal for Texas Instruments and probably not such a great deal for students. Um, so a free graphing calculator that works online, the problem was it was Flash. Um, and they re recoded the whole tool so that it actually now is HTML5, which means it'll run on any modern browser, which does have to have an asterisk that that's not Internet Explorer. <laughs> but that's another conversation, I think. Does this in any way tie to uh, Apple's announcement last week? I mean, is there a degree to which this is kind of breaking the monopoly of the app players so that Apple's sort of positioning themselves to make sure that they are strong in other areas? I mean, this is one of the things that I think we need to, we need to be thinking about in terms of, you know, in terms of things that work across platform. The web is a cross-platform um, technology as opposed to an app. And so I think that, um, I think it's really important to sort of, for us to think about why we would move things off the web and into an app, which is sort of, it's a different sort of walled garden, sort of a technological walled garden. Um, apps, apps aren't searchable. They aren't indexed by Google, the contents of apps. They live in another, um, they sort of live off the web, even if they have, you know, internet connectivity. And so I, I'm a big supporter of people that are turning to the web as the solution, um, uh, you know, for a number of reasons. But I think, but I think that it is, you know, Apple, Apple wants things in an app. Is there a thick client, thin client analogy here? I mean, the degree to which there's still going to be value in the phone doing some processing and the, the web providing the data, will, will, will that exist beyond HTML5? I don't know. 
No, I mean, I think that that's, that's actually something really interesting to think about. And I think the HTML, the development of HTML5, I mean, I think we're going to have to sort of see where it, see where it goes, too, because I think if, if, the, if the technology, if the world of tech moves to apps, um, you know, will HTML5 even be, even be relevant? I can tell when you like someone, <laughs> and I know you like Desmos. Uh -huh. What's their revenue model? Uh, that is a very good question. Actually, the, 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 the funny thing about this, this tool, too, is initially, initially Desmos wanted to make so, uh, software that worked both on sort of interactive whiteboards and on the desktop and on um, mobile devices. And I think that they've been struggling to figure out a revenue model. Um, partially because I think there are lots of systems in play that don't actually want, um, I mean, the whiteboard, the folks who sell you interactive whiteboards don't really want the content to be accessible elsewhere because then why the, why the hell would you buy an interactive whiteboard? Um, so I think that they're in the process of shifting what they're doing. They really like the calculator, partially because the co-founder is um, a very geeky math guy. <laughs> I like three degrees or something, right? <laughs> and so I think they're still sort of struggling to figure out what, what they want to do um, uh, with, with, the, with the calculator. So I think they're at the process of switching. Uh, you know, I tried, I don't know if we've mentioned this on the show before, but I tried Google Translate out in its newest incarnation on my phone, and I was kind of shocked hearing the train rumble by. I was just making sure we're still recording. We are. Okay. <laughs> um, I was kind of shocked at uh, how close the handheld device is getting to the Star Trek Universal mm -hmm. Translator and thinking this is just really an amazing period of time to be thinking about how things get transformed because of this device that we carry around. Okay, so um, virtual classes versus the physical experience. And so Stanford's uh, AI professor leaves Stanford, yeah. uh, which I don't think was any great surprise. And, um, but uh, the, this question of colleges and universities uh, distinguishing themselves, is this maybe a good thing? Meaning, will this lead schools to, to have to, to pick ways that define themselves based on their physical interaction when you have these enormous classes available online? I think that, you know, this is, this is sort of always the, the what, what MIT argued when they made their content available, the, the MIT OpenCourseWare initiative, was what was valuable about well, what was valuable about MIT was two things. I'd say one, you get a degree from MIT, um, but the other is that campus experience, right? There's something about um, coming to school with your peers, having a chance to interact with a professor that makes the the on-site, face-to-face um, experience of a university more valuable. What was really interesting in the case of um, Sebastian Trem leaving Stanford is he said that he said that the students at Stanford who were actually taking his AI class dropped out of that face-to-face -face experience in order to do the online. And I I don't know I don't know I don't know enough sort of why that is. Um, I don't know if it, I heard you know I've heard people say well the online one was easier perhaps perhaps it fit better with their schedules. I mean, if, you know, the, I, mean I, don't, I don't know. But it seemed as though in, the, in, in this particular case, students were opting to do the online massive course rather than be in a classroom with Sebastian's run. So I've heard that referred to as time shifting. Mm -hmm. 
and I really buy that, meaning I know there are times of the day that I'm much more likely to want to learn something or to read an article in depth. So it made some sense to me, mm -hmm. although it was funny the way it was presented in the article, I actually almost felt like it was the professor whose class was failing who was <laughs> sort of making an excuse, but clearly that's right. what was going on. Um, th these massive classes though, at least in this case, this is not actually an open course, right? No, and this, I mean, and, and I think that this is, I mean, I think that that's actually a really important distinction to make too. I mean, I think that we've seen the MOOC, right, the massive online open course become a really interesting and fruitful um, way to rethink what happens in the classroom. Um, and I think of sort of the learners really, the learners really guiding sort of where those classes go and take and do interesting things with them. It's pretty clear that what Thrun is doing is, is not that. Um, in fact, the I was looking at the licensing for what happens in the class and it's, it's copyrighted, it's all locked down, it's still it is still that older model of thinking about the professor driving the conversation rather than the learners. So I came at that licensing with a little bit of history in terms of licensing with social networking mm -hmm. and it wasn't as draconian to me no. because of that. The, right. the social networking services have to have a certain amount of ownership of the content in order to be able to re-display user mm -hmm. comments mm -hmm. and that's always a little bit tricky. Right. Who really owns who, the data of the right. of the participants? Yeah, I think so. But uh, but I think that you know once he's saying that all of the code, like the code itself of the class, and that really is, you know, that really is what he's selling here. There are there were two. There's so many interesting backstories going on at Stanford right now. So they last term there were three classes that were offered online. Right. There was the machine learning, the databases, and then Sebastian Thrun's AI class. And the AI class was already run in, in conjunction with this new startup. The other two stayed Stanford. And two Stanford professors that taught those classes, they built, they built an online learning system to manage these classes. And it, it's, it's actually not clear if they're going to leave Stanford and run a startup as well. Um, but, they, those, um, but Thrun had his own thing. So there's actually, the code, the code behind the scenes that runs and manages the class that has this, um, you know, this sort of, I mean, that helps what delivers the lectures where you sort of submit your homework. And then, of course, it's because it's AI and machine learning that they're actually auto graded as well. Oh, wait so a minute. Robot grading. There, are, there is robot grading <laughs> involved. And so there's actually competition between what appears to be a um, technology that Stanford owns. Um, or at least Stanford has a stake in, an equity stake, and then Sebastian Thrun's startup, which is now its own, its own beast. So there are things going on with, you know, with Stanford that it's not clear that sort of Sebastian Thrun said, I can never go back to Stanford. And I think people interpreted, interpreted that as, you know, once you've taught 160,000 students, sort of your life has changed forever. And I think, I think it's more complicated um, and sort of the, the political machinations behind the scene. There's also, you know, other other things going on. So this is intriguing because as these institutions of higher education become players in the um, in the in the marketplace mm -hmm. of education, uh, there's a degree to which they've actually lagged behind. Mm -hmm. uh, I was at Stanford a couple of weeks ago, and a woman raised her hand, a professor in the Department of Education, and said. So where do you find all of these educational blogs? 
And I was like, well, that's kind of a 10 years ago question. <laughs> and then we, we described to her the places. And then she said, well, why doesn't Stanford come out with the list of the best educational blogs? I thought, well, that's also a really interesting way of approaching the issue. So there's going to be cutting edge and there's going to be being behind. Right. But clearly, what I hear you saying is almost like biotech or Silicon Valley. That this, this is a portion of the, uh, the uh, innovation is going to come from these kinds of individuals and the universities are going to have to negotiate with them how much takes place in the university and how much takes place outside. Yeah, I mean, and I think that it's, you know, the, it's, it's fascinating too in terms of thinking about why a student, you know, why a student wants it's back to this MIT proposition. Like, why do you want to, to go to MIT? Partially because you get a great engineering um, education, but partially because you get a piece of paper that says, you know, I, I have a degree from MIT. So what does it mean, too, that students now will have a letter from Sebastian Thrun? Um, and does that hold the same, so that, can you, can you wield that as you could a Stanford it will come with a badge. <laughs> it will come with a badge. <laughs> okay, so alum.us, alumnus. My first thought was, for those who didn't take Latin, which is going to be the great majority of high school students, are they even going to know what an alumnus is? Nobody thinks of themselves as a high school alumnus. Which is, which is I think, why this, why this particular startup is really fascinating to me. is Because I think we, when we talk about sort of your... The, you know, your alma mater, we don't actually, if you, if you went to a public high school, if you went to a private school, actually, you probably do think of yourself as a graduate from, from a particular right. private school, and certainly from a university. But there's that missing piece at the, at the public school and at the community college level, which sort of, I think, it sort of feeds into lots of other issues about, what, you know, lack of community, responsibility, you know, feeling of responsibility back to, um, you know, back to, the, back to the place where you where you were educated in terms of money, in terms of mentoring, in terms of just a, a, a network that says, I, I went here, they did well by me, or, or, you know, they did, they did well for me, and I want to, I want to give, give back. And so I think that it's, it's, it's sort of addressing interesting pieces that are, that we've never really, that we, we don't address. I had a good high school experience, but quite candidly, I don't really have a lot of interest in reconnecting with the school. Mm -hmm. The people, unlike college, a lot of the people who were there when I was a student aren't there anymore. The, the right, turnover the, the, is different. Right. Um, and classmates.com and some of these other services have already sort of touched this piece of how do you connect with each other. Yeah. And I actually created a Ning site for my high school mm -hmm. reunion um, that probably is the, is the closest we've come to really connecting. I, I was sort of hot and cold on this. I wasn't really sure I would ever contribute to that old high school? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, and I think that that's also, an, an, um, so the co-founder, I've talked with him about this, and he's, you know, he's, because he really is interested in, like, how do we build, how do we sort of make schools and the community around a school more sustainable, particularly, at, at, you know, for public, for public schools. And he said that that's one of the challenges, that you, if you ask people, you know, do you want to give back to your high school, a lot of people were like, oh my god, no. School, like, it was awful. Right. And so, I mean, I think it's actually uncovering lots of issues about sort of why that is. Or maybe you had one great, you know, right. maybe you had a great French teacher, for example, but she's, she's not there any longer. And so um, but I think it's sort of raising interesting questions about um, sort of about why, why don't we have that, why don't we feel a responsibility to 
our the K through 12, right? Um, the, the K through 12 education the same way that we do college. So here's an interesting thought. I actually care more about my children's current schools than I do about my old schools. So my relationship with schools is just as passionate. It's just not an alumni relationship. So maybe they're they thought a lot more about this than I have. Mm -hmm. But I'd actually be more interested in this if it, if it was specific to the schools my kids are currently going to. Yeah, and I, and I have to wonder too if, if sort of it's one of the, the world has changed and I think, you know, the fact of a parent going or kids going to the same schools that parents went to, I mean, that, that yeah, world we're is... Too, we're too uh, much of a, a moving society. Right. Or at least, at least in certain social classes. Yeah. I mean, I went to the same, I went to the same junior high and high school that my dad went to. Interesting. Okay. So uh, on to, um, oh, and, and Alumnus was another Startup Weekend EDU winner. They were. Um, uh, uh, moving on to MIT's open courseware Scholar. Okay, this I love. This, well, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I was actually in Boston last week and I had to go get an MIT t-shirt even though I have no <laughs> affiliation with the school. Um, we start getting calls from their <laughs> development <laughs> department for, for <laughs> contributions. But, uh, but I, I, really, I really do think that what MIT is doing, I mean, they've been thinking about, they've been thinking about open education for a long time now. And again, recognizing that it's not enough to just post the materials, the course materials online. That's well, didn't you report that they were mostly being used by the current students more than they right, were being or, used or, outside? Right, or, or students in some, in some class. Um, and so what the, the MIT um, OpenCourseWare Scholar is a new initiative um, that's sort of how can, we, how can we really make sure that if you don't have resources, right, if you aren't a college student elsewhere, um, sort of using the MIT OpenCourseWare materials to supplement your own classes, how can we really support informal learners? Um, and so they're working on developing the, these scholar courses that are sort of just a beef, I mean, it's just beefing up the, the OpenCourseWare um, materials. Partially they have TAs, which is really interesting. I mean, this is, so this isn't just, you know, the university giving it away. They're actually putting a lot of resources into this um, and they have, a st you know, study groups. They're really trying to make sure that people who want to learn from these materials have a community, a community of fellow learners and some access, not to the professor necessarily, but to TAs, um, which is, a, I think, really exciting. And study groups. And study groups. Yeah, I, I love this idea, and I have to say, my first thought was homeschoolers. Mm -hmm. That this is something they could eat up. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, you actually posted about our weekly podcast, <laughs> and you said the anger in your voice in this episode was palpable. <laughs> um, I, I ordered the book, The Consent of the Network, which just arrived before oh. I left on this trip, and I haven't had a chance to crack it open yet. But I am interested in this sort of assumption we have of positive outcomes from technology. Mm -hmm. And if you look back at the history of technologies, there's this sort of bubble period where we believe that radio or TV is going to sort of democratize everything, and then it becomes proprietary. Right. So, you know, where are the hot points here? Where do we need to be nervous and be thinking about things? Um, and I think, I mean, I think we need to be nervous and thinking about things at, at almost every turn. I mean, I don't mean to sort of sound overly dramatic, but I think that, 
you know, if you, you know, when we, when we look at sort of the budgets for schools being axed and the sort of influx in new, um, new technologies that are sort of promising the fix for um, education, I think that we just need to be very mindful of sort of what's, what's happening financially uh, and thinking about the, the impacts of, of who's investing uh, in what and why. So we're going to go out of order here a little bit because that the anger from last week <laughs> sort of morphed, was continued this week with another announcement that I really think set your teeth on edge. This was the Startup Weekend EDU announcement of uh, Pearson's association with them. Yeah, I've been a, I have been a big, big fan of Startup Weekends for a long time. In fact, longer than, um, since before they started focusing on education, partially because I think that it's just a great learning opportunity to spend the weekend thinking about um, what it means to, to be an entrepreneur and to develop a product um, to actually build something over the course of the weekend, pitch your idea, work on, you know, finding out does anyone even want this idea, doing a little bit of customer development. Um, it's a really, really powerful experience. People don't come with sort of preformed teams and you actually are having to sort of build a team, build a product, think through building, what, building customers. Um, I think it's a really important and exciting learning experience for those people. And when they decided to focus on education, I was thrilled, partially because I think we don't, um, it's very rare that entrepreneurs and engineers and educators sit in the same room, work on the same team to solve a problem together. People are sort of off in separate, separate corners, um, whether working to solve a problem or inventing, <laughs> inventing, inventing things that people might want to buy. Um, and so to see, to see the investment from Pearson, just I think for a, for a project that is real, or this initiative is I think less than six months old, to see Pearson already step in, um, it, it, certainly, it certainly makes me, uh, well, I think I called it breaks my heart, <laughs> but it certainly, it makes me very, very reluctant to participate in, to participate in those events. But, I mean, I think there were some concerns specifically around the mentoring, at least for me, mm -hmm. you know, kind of the close association. So uh, I, I felt that we went through this with open source software and education mm -hmm. to a degree, which is we discovered that a lot of our motivation for open source software was actually to disrupt the system. Mm -hmm. it, you know, it turns out that we were using open source as a channel. I think right. ed tech is kind of the same thing. We sort of see educational technology as an opportunity to sh change the status quo. Mm -hmm. So it felt like part of the disappointment here was just realizing that what we had seen as a disruptive force may not actually end up being disruptive. The startup weekend EDU. Right. I mean, I think that this is one of the one of the interesting shifts that we're seeing, particularly with the rise of sort of new consumer consumer technology, is that for a long time the model of the model um, of distribution of products in the classroom was very much top-down, right? The district would buy whiteboards, the district would buy textbooks, the district would buy computers. And, um, you know, the consumer technology was actually reaching students, reaching teachers, um, and a very uh, sort of more grassroots adoption of, of tools. Um, and so I think that that's interesting because those are actually the, those are the users. The, the, the customer is the user as opposed to in that old model. The customer is 
the district and the, it, the customer isn't the, the user. And so thinking about what it means to sort of put tools in the hands, help build tools that go in the hands of students and teachers is very different now than this, than this addition of Pearson's money, which is sort of saying, we're going to help you get your product back in the hands of the districts. And I think that's, the, that's sort of the promise of what they say, is that we'll, we'll teach you how to sell school districts. Well, so inherent in that is not changing the distribution model, meaning mm -hmm. we've sort of seen that one of the difficulties we've talked about with educational startups is how do they actually get into an ecosystem that seems to be largely built around uh, institutional decision makers. Mm -hmm. So I can see where Startup Weekend EDU it feels like, okay, we're bringing people in and the only really tangible way for them to get into the decision making process or the buying process. But I'm not sure we really want that buying process to continue. Exactly. I mean, I think that that's, I think that that's precisely the point. And I think that, you know, Pearson being able to say they can sort of help, you know, help, <laughs> <laughs> help innovate and help, you know, help steer the conversation to sort of improve. In is that steam coming out of your ears? <laughs> I mean, this is this is the business of education, right? Pearson is not about Pearson isn't about learning or teaching. They're about the business of. But education. I'm sure they tell the story that they are about teaching and learning. I mean, that's got to be a part of their their internal culture. It's just a very different view of how you actually help there. I, I don't want to draw too close a parallel. <laughs> But I couldn't help but think about Wall Street and the idea of having the people who've caused the problem solve the problem. So <laughs> without going too deeply well, there. No, I mean, and I think that that's, you know, I think that that's, that's so, it's so funny because almost every startup, education startup that I know right now is building something that Pearson also builds. And that what they want to do is make it better, make it cheaper, you know, go directly to the, you know, build what the teachers and the students want instead of this this other model. And so Pearson is actually the competitor of almost every startup. And they are sort of part of the reason why things aren't great today <laughs> is, you know, this, the, the, right. the textbooks, the testing, the, the forced mandated curriculum, and that's Pearson. <laughs> you know, it's... I mean, it's not just Pearson, right. but, it's, but, it's but it is almost just But it's Pearson. really easy to follow the money and realize just how much motivation gets built around job security, promotion. I mean, it's not as though anybody in these companies is trying to do anything that they would feel is, is not appropriate. Right. It's just money motivates, and more money motivates more, and do you really want that driving assistant? If Pearson were to do one or two things that would shift this in your own mind, what could they do to actually change your perception of their association with Startup Weekend EDU? Oh, man. <laughs> Drop out? <laughs> no, I mean, could they, I mean, one of the suggestions I made was that they actually get a group of former um, attendees of the Startup Weekends mm -hmm. and a group of educators together and say, what role can we play here? If, if, if they really want to be authentic players rather than um, sort of vulture capitalists, right? The, the, the response I'm getting is, listen, Pearson doesn't even look at small projects like this. They would never consider buying. There actually is an authentic desire to help here. So if there's an authentic desire to help, can you manifest that in some real way? Could you actually bring people together and say, what can we do? And we're not going to, you know, we're not going to, we're going to follow your guidance. Would that make a difference? I mean, I think that 
it might be a, the first gesture, but I mean, I think we are talking about like a multi-billion dollar company here, and it's a bit like asking, you know, you know through more metaphors here, but it's a bit like sort of having a problem in your small town um, with, the, you know, with the garbage pickup and asking like the Department of Energy <laughs> from, you know, the federal government to come in. I mean, it's just, I just don't think that the, that the, that the size of Pearson and the goals of Pearson are really about that answering sort of these local, right. small community um, questions and problems. But there are precedents for large organizations making their staff available to do mentoring and guidance that are clearly outside of any financial interest. Well, and I've, I've mentored, I've mentored three or four startup weekend EDUs. I mean, that was me offering my expertise because I, I care, which is really different than me giving a bunch of money and saying, now you really get my, now you really get my expertise. Well, if anybody's listening, hopefully we've given you some food for thought. Okay, on to one of our other favorite topics, the Chromebook. Okay, so hundreds of schools. There, there was something about that that just sort of said to me, we're celebrating a grain of sand on a beach. Well, this was funny because um, Google contacted me and said, we're going to be making an announcement at FETC about Chromebooks. And I thought, oh man, didn't I just predict <laughs> that Chromebooks were, were, were going away this year? And um, I don't think Chromebooks are going away because they've sold, they're in hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> we should put this in context. I mean, uh, how many schools are using Google Apps for education? Do we know? I think that there are, um, Google says there are 15 million Google Apps for education users. And so hundreds of schools would actually translate into how many possible users? 27,000 students, Well, they're getting 27,000. They said that was one of their other numbers that they said is 27,000 more students will get Chromebooks in three states. I don't remember which And one. how many iPads are there out there <laughs> um, being used in schools? Lots and <laughs> lots. Okay, so the only thing I wanted to say was Nobody's going to tell you months in advance they're closing a program down, right? right? Well, and maybe they don't even know. Well, and you don't actually, I mean, that was sort of, you don't actually go to FETC to make a big announcement, which is like, oh, guess what? Yeah. You know these great, these great cloud-based devices? Um, yeah, we're done with that. Well, so, you know, my thought was you might even work in that group and not know that the axe is coming, and you're going to continue to tout the program until it finally comes. I, not that I'm hoping for that, and no, especially I, after the, the announcements of the devices, you know, earlier, a couple right. of weeks ago. Well, I mean, and one interesting, I mean, I did talk to uh, Rajan Sheft, who is now the head of the Chromebook, or the Chrome OS team, and he actually was the inventor of Google Apps. And so he, you know, he made the argument that, the, that, the up, that you know, stu schools adopting Google Apps for education was very slow. But then they reached this critical mass, and now, you know, now it's really successful. And so his argument was, it's a sort of a slow and steady, this is what we're expecting. We didn't expect sort of, I don't know, thousands of schools. <laughs> we only expected dozens of schools, no. Um, so he says that this is sort of, they're seeing the same adoption that, that they saw with Google Apps, for what it's worth. Yeah, I mean, no, no, and again, know. I don't want to pres presume any understanding of something I, we don't understand or I don't understand. Right. But certainly the Google of two years ago is not the Google of today. They've been much quicker to close programs yeah. down. So I'm not sure I would let your prediction go just yet. <laughs> I, don't okay. I don't think you have to raise the white flag <laughs> yet. Okay, so I l I'm so thrilled about Google Plus being open to teens. 
Yeah, this is, I'm glad too. I mean, this was, again, one of those things that I wasn't sure what, what Google w was going to do. And when they launched the social network, they said, you know, 18 and older. And I think that there's a lot of really great um, possibilities for Google Plus in the classroom, particularly the integration with, you know, with the Google Apps, the ability to do Hangouts in your classroom, the ability to, you know, to the equivalent of sort of Skyping people in, working on documents together. Um, it is, uh, it is great. It's a good move on Google's part. Will, will teens use it? I don't know. And will school, will schools, will schools use it? Again, I don't know. It's funny, looking at um, uh, Brad, Bradley Horowitz's, um, he posted it on Google Plus, uh, the announcement saying that they were opening it up. And yet there were, you know, hundreds of comments, and most of them were like, you know, oh my God, don't ever let children on the internet sort of comments. And so I still think, you know, I still think that there's a lot of resistance to giving teen, teens uh, access, uh, giving teens access to, to social networks. But it seems like Google's also willing to do some education. I think so. I think so. And I think that they've, you know, they, and they've also made some, you know, they've, I think they've moved forward thoughtfully, which, which is what they said they would do. They didn't, they weren't sure they had it right for, for, for kids. Um, and there are several things now, teens for example, um, there are some restrictions on sort of who teens, who can chat with teens, who can, who can, um, uh, who can reach out and I am with them. And so I think they are trying to make sure that this is, that this is quite a safe, a safe place for them to be. One of my big gripes with ePals has been their, their rollout of programs, especially their email program to large districts that, that define down to uh, grade level and individuals who, who you can and cannot email. Mm -hmm. and I felt like a student coming out of that environment at say at the end of high school hasn't actually made choices and decisions. They've been sort of boxed in because of adult fears. And so how do we get this balance of actually teaching appropriate use without creating every boundary that needs to be there? Right, and I think that that's one of the, that's one of the great things about having, having this be Google is this is the open web. This isn't, you know, this isn't even Facebook, which has, I realize, a website, but it is still sort of walled off from other things. And so I think that, you know, giving sort of, getting students um, thinking about what it means to be, what it means to comment, what it means to write publicly. What does public even, what does public even mean? What does it look like? You know, how, how, how do your things appear in search now that they're changing the way search works? And so I think it is important to, to have students really start thinking critically about their online, their online presence. And I don't mean in a scary sort of, like you post a bad picture on Facebook that you'll never get a job and you won't get into college. But I, I do think that students need, they do need to be thinking about this because they are, if they're not doing it at school, they are certainly doing it at home in the evening. Okay, so President Obama was long on platitudes and short on honest talk. What, is this an election year or something? <laughs> wow, he, um, uh, uh, I'm so angry. What's <laughs> <laughs> that? I was Next week we promise we'll be up <laughs> no, Please somebody has some good news for us. But no, I was, I was actually shocked to hear that we were going to criminalize dropping out of school. Like that, to me, of, to me that just seemed to go, fly in the face of almost everything we know about actually why, why that happens, right? Why kids, kids don't drop out of school because they're lazy or even because they hate school and we need to sort of force them to stay there. 
Um, there, there are a lot of reasons, and they have to do with poverty, and they have to do with real tragedy that the kids experience in their lives. And so, um, to, to, crimi to criminalize to criminalize being a teenager um, just strikes me as a, another example that uh, President Obama and his policies are just really out of touch with what's happening with what's happening at, at schools. We're getting some people coming in the room. We don't know if we're, you may end up pausing. Um, David Wiley. Yes. Utah and open <laughs> everything. How, how funny is it that everyone can be so excited about 1499 iBook textbooks, and lo and behold, when you make it open source, when you make it shareable, um, it looks like Utah now is going to be able to have textbooks for its math, science, and language arts teachers at five bucks a pop, which is certainly um, certainly a better deal than the 1499 we were supposed to think was so wonderful. Thank yes. you. Those those feel like the real innovations. Yes. Okay, uh, one school, and um, uh, which led me to thinking about independent, non-pedagogical applications. Mm -hmm. This is an interesting one too. Um, that uh, this is a new startup that's uh, taking a bunch of university data in order to sort of build mobile app, build mobile apps um, around campus life. So it's what's, what classes are available. You know, where's where's the bookstore? You know, what what's the sports schedule? Um, but what's interesting is that they're actually having to scrape this from the web. So this isn't they don't have a deal with the universities to get this information. They're having to sort of which seemed really brilliant to me. <laughs> so too, but but, it, but it's this other indication of you know if schools if schools aren't providing sort of an API or a way to get the data, we can get the I mean we can get the data, um, and so what it, you know. Sort of leaving leaving the schools out of the even out of sort of there's no way for sort of schools to make money off of this because they they're trying to keep all of their you know all of their data behind you know behind a wall. So. Yeah, I loved it. Uh, it made me think of all kinds of ways in which we've been um, I've had blinders on related to what kinds of things you could do at school mm -hmm. uh, around the mobile technology. Okay, libraries sitting down with publishers to talk. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think this is actually really important. Um, you know, the, we've we've talked a lot about the the ways in which um, just over the last year, most of the major publishers have either prevented their ebooks from being lent, prevented audiobooks from being lent, saying that you know we there's that the that the that the business model around libraries doesn't work once content is digitized. And so the ALA had their midwinter meeting uh, this past week, and they said that we need to, you know, we need to sit down and sort of figure this out. We can't, that librarians cannot just be beholden to these sort of new rules that the publishers are are making up. And so I think they'll be meeting face to face with several of the several of the big the big publishers, and the ones right now that that don't allow ebooks in the library to figure things out. Interesting. It wasn't a huge shock to me that ISTE's closing down their Second Life island. Sometimes I'm shocked that there's still Second Life. So what's the deal there? I mean, isn't this, isn't this sort of inevitable, the immersive world's technology? And, and Google closed down their one app that teachers were using, and, and ISTE's closing down what was a pretty well-publicized initiative. Is it, just, is it going away or just sort of submerging for a while? I think that there's lots of things in play. I mean, part of it is I think that the you know the, the that sort of really 
um, processor and graphic intensive program just doesn't work on everybody's machines, particularly as people, you know, as people move to iPads for one, but to, to tablets, to netbooks. I mean, you, it's even hard to run Second Life on a, on a laptop. And so I just think that the, that the, that the it's, and it's not in the browser. There's no sort of web-based right. web portal to get into Second Life. So it feels like, it feels like really, um, sort of a really intense, um, a really sort of processing intensive program that just doesn't work for everyone. And Second Life was confusing. So we've chosen mobility and ubiquity over immersion. I think so, for, for now at least. I mean, I, and I don't think that, I don't think that, that these things are sort of technologically impossible, but I, but I do think, I mean, I do think that we'll have to, we do have to rethink sort of, you know, the, the, those, those trade-offs. And I mean, I even look at, you know, uh, video games and video game, gaming is even sort of rethinking what sort of, what sort of experience can we give gamers? Do they just have to be sitting at home on their couch with their, you know, with their Xbox? Because certainly the games that you play on your phone, which is where most people play games now, are very, they're very different. Angry Birds is a very simple game. It's a very simple game. Okay, in structure Canvas and the cloud. So in structure gets pretty mixed reviews. In structure is, um, in structure is a, I would say, a fairly updated version of a fairly old idea of the of the learning management system. So the software looks great. It's it's browser, you know, it's a browser based. They, some of the code is open source, but it is still very much this old learning management system model, which I think we've talked about before. It may or may not be sort of the, the future of learning management. But interestingly, they sort of threw down the gauntlet this week. Um, last year, there were some concerns about Blackboard security, um, and not that, not just that there were sort of security holes. I mean, there's security holes all over the place, but that Blackboard didn't do a very good job of sort of communicating to its users that there were some pretty substantial, pretty substantial security holes. So Instructure sort of has seized upon this as a great PR thing for them. They did a security audit. They fixed the things that the security firm found, and they said, why, why isn't the LMS industry as, as a whole sort of having these open security audits? We can't sort of, we can't keep this sort of behind closed doors and not telling our customers. It's a good horn for them to toot. It's a great, it's a great horn for them to toot. So, well, you know, again, the full disclosure needs to be made. I do part <laughs> work part-time for Blackboard since they bought Illuminate. Um, but I am interested kind of in the inevitability of a shift in terms of large-scale deployments with the cloud. Well, and I think that this is one, this is the thing that they, that they were very concerned about sort of getting people to talk about, um, to talk about the security issue, but that's, that's this other piece that is interesting. Once you, once you move away from a local on-site uh, um, deployment to cloud-based, it's one of the reasons why the Google Apps is so great, right, is that Google rolls out an update and you don't have to walk around the room installing the new CD onto everybody's machine. Okay, we're getting close to the timing here. I think yeah. we've got a minute or two left. Um, my data and students downloading, the, my data button and students downloading their own data. I loved this until I read three names. I know. <laughs> Guess who? Do we really have to go back to it again? <laughs> well, this is, this is actually, I think this is a really exciting idea. This is, um, the, the Department of Veteran Affairs made a blue button, and there's this idea that, that vets should be able to, with one click of the button, download all their health records. And, um, uh, 
and you know, it's your data. You should be able to get it out. You should own your data. And now the government is sort of looking at how they can implement that idea in other sectors. Um, but right now leading the conversation is Pearson and Parchment, which is actually a new startup run by the founder of Blackboard. <laughs> Something I didn't know. Again, full disclosure. <laughs> so, the, so the folks who are involved in sort of saying what this looks like, I mean, I don't feel like every, not everyone's at the table. A very select group of companies are at the table. Interesting. Okay, uh, I, th I think we should probably end there. Audrey, <laughs> we'll hope for a smile next week. <laughs> yes, let's hope, let's hope that there's something fabulous um, coming that we haven't heard about yet. We'll see. Thanks. Have a great week, everybody. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Sorry, you guys. Thanks for being so quiet. <laughs>